Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and welcome to my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore the LDS scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. I'm a longtime gospel doctrine teacher, sometime institute and seminary teacher, and a current theology student. My friends and I are often discussing history, context, and theology, and thought that you might appreciate it too. I think of it as a bridge between academic and inspiration. However, these opinions are my own and not an official representation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks again for listening, and I hope this will be a blessing to you on the road to discipleship. And welcome back, Scriptorians. This is Lori. I am the 20-Minute Scriptorian, and we are headed into First and Second Thessalonians today as part of Come Follow Me. We're in the end of October and finishing up Paul's epistles. Now, as you remember, last time we did the All About, which was more of context and history and setting. But this time, we're going to take a minute and go through some of the verses and see if we can't lift out and unpack some of the things that he was saying. All right, so let's do that together. I'm going to head on over to the uh, scriptures. It's this First and Second Thessalonians are super brief, so if you haven't read them, no big deal. We'll read most of them together, actually, tonight. So really a nice uh, way to jump in and get a whole letter and just a nice big bite. Uh, but as you remember, this is one of Paul's, probably the earliest writing, and actually in the whole New Testament, not just Paul's epistles, but all of the writings, probably written the soonest. And Paul had left uh, the Thessalonians, the people left leave, living in Thessalonica, uh, which is up in Macedonia, kind of by Philippi. And he had left them, and he had, the persecutions became very great, and he hadn't been there very long, and they ha- he and, and uh, Silas had to flee. And so he was probably down in Corinth at this time. He was worried about how it was working out up there. Obviously, to be a new Christian would have been kind of on your own at this point, so I'm sure he was worried about them. So he's writing this letter, and he sends it back. He hears from Timothy how they're doing, but he sends this letter back to salute them and 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 congratulate on how well they're doing. He's so loving, and you can just hear it in this letter. So go ahead, and let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians. And you know what? I, I know I keep jumping between versions, so this time I'm actually going to go to King James, just for those of you that might be uncomfortable if I'm doing something else. Um, actually, I lied. I, I'm a liar. I'm going to do New Revised Standard, um, because you have a King James probably in front of you. So since I get to pick... Let's go there. All right, so Paul does his typical greeting. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So his typical salutation says who he is, who it's going to, and a small blessing. And then he jumps into verse 2. And I'm just going to read these next verses because there's a great little story here. and It's only just a handful of verses. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us, And of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak of it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and will wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. All right, so it's kind of a prayer almost that Paul gives here, um, and you can feel how grateful Paul is that that these faithful saints have remained true and become some great ex- such great examples. I love what he says here, and he uses uh, in verse three, remembering uh, to God our Father, which is interesting that he uses that title that it's not just God, but he almost in prayer he's using. Uh, addressing our father that it's a relationship and it's close and that when we approach in prayer we we have that relationship so powerful there just like Christ in his the Lord's prayer but he says but I remember your work of faith your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ so did you catch that it was faith love hope um why do you think he's using all three of those what does that tell you about the three? Do they go together? Is there something about them that jumps out? So for me, what jumps out at this one is that that Paul is telling them that their deeds, the way they've changed inside, has become evident. And he says that a little bit later. But he's saying what he can see and how evident it is that their faith and the labor of their love and the steadfastness and hope is evident. I love how those are kind of actions. It isn't just faith. Faith is great. It's a big, powerful word. But I love how it's a little bit more. It's action. It's transactions, right? It's a labor. It's steadfastness behavior. But not only that, he says in verse 5, because our message of the gospel came to you not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So he says, I can tell that it made a difference. When they heard this message, the Spirit came on them and it made a powerful change. When the Spirit comes on us, does this gospel change us? He's he's noting that change in the Thessalonians. And he's even saying that you became examples not just in your town, but in the surrounding areas. And then just radiated out that their faith and hope and steadfastness and love became obvious to everyone and it made a change in them they turned away from their old beliefs they served a true and living God and then they were waiting for the second coming now that might be would you have said that boy I'm going to join the church and then I'm going to start waiting for the second coming um maybe but they definitely were it was a big deal for them they thought it was fairly imminent as you can see because they were very worried that some of those that had died have missed it um but i love this first prayer this first part of the letter that it's action-based and then it changes that when the holy spirit comes on us it changes us from the inside what do you think do you have an evidence of this work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope in, in Christ? Uh, interesting. All right, let's move on to chapter two. Um, in chapter two, he really talks about some of the opposition and some of the other uh, teachers that had come. And he just reminds them that 
as an evidence of a true teacher, of a true servant leader, that he's not bringing trickery, he's not a, uh, some kind of salesman, he's not trying to get money or some kind of something out of the people, but in fact, he was persecuted. And, and he says that's kind of a witness of how much he loved them and how much he, uh, I love how he says in verse 7 here, he's discussing how much he loves them and how he's this true servant, but he says, we were gentle among you like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. It was like a nursing mother. Um, I I cared for you. I was like a mother to you. I, I didn't try to get praise. I didn't try to do those things. And he says, I love how he says in the end of verse eight, um, he says, so deeply do we care for you that we determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. We all have assignments to minister to each other. We have assignments in the gospel as missionaries, as teachers, as parents. What's the best way to teach someone? I think Paul's saying here is that we serve them. We share our very selves. We give up what's really inside and really care. Uh, We've certainly been the recipients of that. I think of a few examples in my own life when I had a teacher or a parent that obviously really, really cared about me. That was when I was the most receiving of something. I learned the most, but also when I was teaching, I give the most and it made the most difference. Uh, When I first received my mission call, I was so excited to go on a mission, like so many missionaries, and I got my mission call and I couldn't even wait. And so these were the days when it came in the mail and it arrived like on a Thursday or something. And I got off work early and I rushed to my apartment And I tried to call some family members and I was too impatient. I could not wait. And so I opened it on my own, (laughs) just opened it on my own. And you're reading that first part and you're so excited and you're really just scanning ahead to see where you're going to go. And it said that I was going to Spain, Barcelona, Spanish speaking. And, And I was a little disappointed. That sounds crazy. Why was I disappointed? I have no idea. Well, that's a lie. I know exactly why. I had grown up right on the border of uh, in San Diego, and speaking Spanish was very normal. Most people spoke Spanish. So to go to a Spanish-speaking mission, even in Europe, it sounded like, oh, that just sounded like home to me. And so I was a little bit disappointed. I wanted something exotic and, I don't know, exciting or something. Um, by the time you get to, at least for me, when I got to my mission, you start serving with your whole heart. You get to know the people. And... By the time I was done with my mission, and actually didn't take the whole time, obviously, but by the time I was done, I, I was so sad to leave. I didn't want to leave them. I had given so much of myself. I just learned to love them that it didn't matter where I went or what language I spoke. I had given my whole self, and they had become very dear to me. In fact, I couldn't imagine life without these people, and I still uh, love them and think of them. So, hola, Barcelona. Um, But I think that's such a great testimony to us of how we serve and how we can minister is to we care for them like a nurse caring for our own children and we share not only the gospel but ourselves because we've given so much to them. Beautiful, isn't it? That's that's some of the highlights from chapter 2. Let's move on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 just reminds us a little bit that Uh, This is where uh, Paul sent Timothy back to just find out and encourage the the Thessalonians. Remember, they had only been there a month before he and Silas had to flee. 
and so uh, kind of riots. Now remember, there was kind of a worship of other gods, and and you know, in the Greek and Roman world, they're just a bajillion of them, right? They're just anytime anything happened in your life, you had to uh, pray to a god or go to a shrine. So you're planting a tree to pray to a god. Uh, you get a new car or a cart, whatever. In your day, you had to pray to a god. You have a kid getting married, you've got to make a big donation and go to the shrine. Uh, anything that happened, you had to worship. Uh, one of these gods or goddesses that it was around so for the people to leave that so quickly and not have a really great support system yet remember this is not the 21st century with the internet and things there he's very worried about what's going to happen there and obviously it was heavily persecuted that that uh, both judaism and now christianity wasn't seen as very acceptable in the greek and roman world so he was very paul's very worried so he sends paul back uh, to strengthen them, it says encourage them so that no one can be shaken by these persecutions that you don't, wants to make sure they're okay. I mean, wow, can you imagine being that strong a persecution and, and only having a few, a month or so of the apostles with you? Just crazy. He says, but uh, but know that this is what we're destined for. And he said, so we're going to be persecuted. And so he says, I, I know I was. And he just says, I couldn't stand any longer. And I had to send, send Timothy back. But Timothy comes back and reports that all is well. And he just says he had been praying um, most earnestly that anything that they were lacking that Paul could help with. So you can just feel this care and concern for the for his family there. And then he has um, a little bit more at the bottom of three. And it says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself, remember he's almost a prayer again, he's using this uh, title of God and Father together. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increased and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he's just so worried and proud of them, but worried about their faith and the strength. I just love the power of these verses and these brief but powerful letter. He goes on in chapter four to encourage them to uh, in a life. Now, remember, Paul almost always has some kind of theological theory. He'll talk about Christ or uh, the second coming or some teaching. And then he's very practical when he gets down to what that means. And it's about practice and faithfulness and action. And in chapter four, he goes on to that a little bit more. And he basically says uh, in, in verse three, he says, for this is the will of God, your holiness or your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions, that no one wrong or exploit a brother and sister in this matter. Uh, and so he's really calling them to be sexually pure. In that day and age, that was not common, right? You would go to even temples and, and practice immorality. And so he is saying this was a problem in their day and age. Doesn't this letter sound like it could apply to us? We know how prevalent... Um, immorality is today and how common it is and how accepted it is in our society and it's very similar to them 2,000 years ago so he's saying hey if you you're trying to be a faithful disciple be holy step away from those things learn to control your body and holiness and don't you abuse other people either it's not just you this affects others when you do these things uh, lastly, he goes on to this coming of the Lord. Now, remember, they were very worried about, uh, there were some persecutions and some people had died. 
And we don't know if they died in the persecutions or just died, but they were very worried about what was going to happen to these uh, faithful brothers and sisters who had passed away. And so he's going to tell us some interesting facts. And he says, uh, this is in uh, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And I said, well, there's a hope. Don't grieve. There's a hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So they were very worried, and do you get it? He said, they was kind of like, will they go first? Will we go first? Will they be gone forever? Then he tells this beautiful uh, story of what's going to happen, that those who believed, if they died first, they're going to come with Christ, and then we'll be caught up and meet them. And that's that reference to kind of how a king would come to a city. You would send out your delegation uh, and meet the king along the road, and then they would travel back with the king to your town and, and bring him in and welcome him in. And he's describing that same kind of occurrence with those who have passed on. We'll, we'll come with Christ, and, and then we will go out and meet him if we're still alive. So everyone is going to be there um, who is worthy. Uh, brothers and sisters, I think that's a pretty good place to start f- or some tips for First Thessalonians. Uh, let's jump over to Second Thessalonians. Okay, Second Thessalonians was sent pretty quickly after First Thessalonians, from what we can tell. And while Paul is going to write them and, and say, hey, I was hoping that some of the things he kind of corrected about the teachers and some of the immorality and some of the worries about resurrection— it doesn't seem like it had quite calmed down, so he writes back and is is still worried about some of those topics. And I just want to talk on one thing, and it's right in verse, uh, chapter one. Uh, chapter one has some of this, uh, the most where you get kind of the idea of hell and everlasting fire. If you think about the scriptures, think about how many scriptures do you have about what life after death is going to be like, and and you can think of. Uh, section 76 and you do section 135 and you can I uh, do here in second Thessalonians however um, this was one of the scriptures that I would get quoted to all the time at, in my little evangelical school um, about some everlasting fire and it's this verse so I don't want to take this out of context but he is saying there are persecutions there endurance during and that there is a righteous judgment and so you're suffering uh, because that's just how it goes, basically. But he's also saying that, uh, let me read it to you. It's in verse starting seven. He says, uh, the ju- he's talking about Christ's coming. There's going to be this judgment. And, and that uh, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those afflicted as well as to us. And when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith. Um, this is I, where it kind of gets out of context, I think, for people. They think of this end that Christ will come. And remember, there's always this idea that in the end, that all the injustices that have happened in this life, whether it's pain or death or persecution or anything, will be set right in the end. And so he's just saying that, hey, in the end, you will be set right. And he does describe something that those who will suffer will be separated from the presence of glory, uh, of the Lord and from his glory. So interesting, the punishment is separation. And it does say eternal destruction. So people kind of get stuck on that. I used to get quoted that a lot in my classes. <laughs> this was like their favorite verse and I wasn't familiar with it. So read through that and see what you say. But I think what they're saying is that when when Christ comes, these things will be set right. Remember, these people are really being persecuted. Then you're thinking, when he co- when is he coming? Because this sucks, right? <laughs> I hope it gets better. But I think he ends it well, and he says, so that in the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is saying that it will all work out in the end. Have faith. Love each other. And that is First and Second Thessalonians. <laughs>